This episode is brought to you by Revolver Studios, Portland's own homegrown recording studio and music production house, run by musicians for musicians. Revolverstudios.org. This is the Portland Film Podcast, and I'm your host, Molly Silverstein. Today, we continue our screenwriting series recorded at the 2016 Portland Film Festival with the Perils of Screenwriting Workshop, Part 1. Panelists include Leslie Dixon, Laurie Craig, Randall Jansen, and Miguel Tejada Flores. Our panelists share tips on pitching, working with an agent, insights on writer's block, the usefulness of negative comments, and survival strategies before your next Oscar nomination. One quick note before we begin. You will notice brief pauses throughout the workshop as the audience asks questions, and also some of the language used during the workshop may not be suitable for young listeners. And now, here's our panel. No, we're we're in a we're in a new paradigm. You know, I mean, the four yeah, the four of us uh, are products of 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 a, of a dying of a dying system. Let's put it that way. You know, I mean, there's no other way to look around it. We're you know, virtual reality is just around the corner, gang, and that's going to change everything. And 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 things are progressing. You know, absolutely the way they should. You know, we're right on schedule. About every 25 years, there's a game changer that comes to the motion picture industry, whether it's sound, color. Um, you know, t- television, video, digital stuff, it, it all, you know, and everyone runs around screaming, you know, the sky is falling. And the fact is that it's just, it's just changing the spectrum for uh, narrative storytelling. That's all. It's just getting sort of broader. But the, the fact is the, the, the system that we came up through in the 80s, 90s, and, you know, just after the turn of the century here is, is I, I think, is fading really, really fast. And as you can see by the product of the studios nowadays, it's all about superheroes. And it's essentially, it's, it, the jobs are going out to the one percenters and everyone else is kind of out on the street. We're all independent filmmakers now, which is kind of good news and bad news for, for those of us who live in the hinterlands, you know, um, uh, places other than LA or New York or, or big media centers. And that means that, yeah, there's a lot of more, there's maybe more accessibility that's going on now. There are people with some money. There's a dentist in Lake Oswego who's like saying, you know, I've got, I got two or $3 million sitting in the, the bank. Yeah. You know, that I'd like to, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, that's real money now. I mean, we used to sort of scoff at something like that, but in this new paradigm, you know, a million dollars is like, Hey, we can make a feature with that. So for you, for you who are out there right now, um, you know, don't necessarily set your sights on Hollywood because I don't know if that's really the place you need to go. You can start locally. Yeah. Yeah. I just watched that eight part Winona Ryder series on Netflix. Um, it was good. And, um, so you could actually write something and, and dig into it and it wouldn't have to be 120 pages. Maybe it could be eight episodes of something over and out. So you don't have to live in LA and run a writer's room. Um, but that creatively it's very exciting, but screenwriters salaries because of all these other places that the money is flowing. It's like there was, it's almost as though there was only like one pool of money and we were getting most of it, and and then network TV people were getting the rest because those people got really rich. Is that an oxymoron? Screenwriters' salaries. Well, that, it's not enough to just do the note. 
you, you have to make it work. So you'd have to go back and make adjustments all the way throughout. And I think where people get hung up is they'll take the studio note or the producer note or the HBO note or the Amazon note, whatever the power that be is, and just do it. And it's sort of like a sullen child, you know, doing the dishes. Like, I'll do it, but I won't do a very good job and I won't, you know, leave the, I'll leave the peanut butter knife on the counter and you won't be happy. That's a way to get fired. I mean, you have to do the note and then make sure the note works. And that's not easy, but that's, that's really what the gig is. Uh, when I was first starting out, my second drafts were very, you know, they got very boggy and, and long because most notes are lengthening. They're like, oh, this, this is really funny when he did that thing. Can he do that three more times? Well, guess what? It's not funny the fourth time at all. So you have to have ballast that you can throw overboard. You have to know where you can make cuts because you have to adjust it, even the structure within a scene. Like, oh, we don't want the guy to break down and cry here. What if he has a cup of coffee and breaks down and cries in the hospital cafeteria? Well, you can't have him breaking down three times. So you have to go back and like have him only break once and then you cut to the cafeteria or whatever the, you know, the note is. When they're giving you their, their note, they're not telling you how to fix their problem. They're just telling you this is the problem. Um, and you have to listen to like the Band-Aid. They'll give you the Band-Aid and listen to what's underneath the Band-Aid to get to the wound in order to apply the right. Yeah, they don't want to work with somebody that's very precious about their material. And I had the experience uh, several years ago uh, working with an architect because we were building an outbuilding. And so I had, and it was my money. I was like the studio then. And so we had architects come in and interview and, and there was this one guy who was like, what is the meaning of a door? You know, like what's, what's the window really about? I'm like, it's to look through a wall, you know? Um, and it really made me appreciate the other side because when it's my money, I want the window where I want it. It's my money. So if I'm telling you I want the roof on the ceiling and the this on the there, I want you to figure out how to make it work and make the building stand up. Does that make sense? Um, so just not be not not be so precious about your own material. And sometimes, well, let me just. And sometimes you just say, "Wow, that's a really good idea. I'm going to think about that." Okay, and then um, uh, you get out of the meeting, and then they even forget they suggested it to you later on. So you just kind of you know hope it kind of will go away, and it does sometimes. They forget. And, and I have one strategy, and then sort of a cynical comment because I can't help myself. Uh, I, I wrote a several movies and some of them came out pretty good which were made for TV movies for uh, USA Networks. And I would write the draft and then I would go with my producers and there would be four or five suits and they would give me all their notes and I would whip out my laptop and say, hey, do you guys mind if I like take some notes of what you're saying? And and then they would go, sure. And then they would be saying all this shit and I would be like going like this and they go, whoa, are you really writing down what we're saying? And I go, yeah, because I, I, this is like really important. I want to be able to think about it. And they go, whoa. And by doing that, I won a bunch of battles because they thought I was listening to them and I actually was. And then, and then when they would say, well, what do you think about this? I would say, it's really interesting. Let me think about it. And by having appeared, and I did listen to them, they cut me a bunch of slack because they were willing. And what she was saying about coming up with third ideas, which is not your idea or their idea, that works too. So that's the good news. The bad news is you're a writer. If you don't want people to change your work, you should be a playwright. 
then it will say a play by. Granted, you'll do some work, but if you're a professional writer and if you're going to make a deal with the producers or the production company or the filmmaker or the director, you're going to have to make changes. If you don't want to do it, don't sign the contract. You know, some of us get lucky sometimes. Some of us work with gifted directors who help us. I've learned a bunch of shit from some great directors. Some of us work for morons, and the morons say shit like, God, you know, this is really funny, you know, the, but, the, you know, the horror film where you, the person kills himself, and they say it's really great, but can you make it funny? And you go, give me a fucking break. Are you kidding me? Well, guess what? You made the deal. You're stuck with them. You're in bed. And if you don't want to be a person. Yeah. Uh, Laurie's architectural uh, comment is a really good one because I've, I've used that too by saying, um, well, when somebody wants you to make, you know, changes that are disagreeable to you, uh, it's like living in a house that somebody comes along and busts out your beautiful kitchen remodel and puts formica everywhere and a flocked ceiling. Guess what? You sold them the house that you don't own it anymore. And when you sign that contract, you don't own your script anymore. So you're now an employee working on your own script, which they own and can give to somebody else to rewrite and will, you know, if they're not enjoying working with you. So that's the most biggest peril heartbreak is that you get in, you get your foot in the door and then you're up against these kinds of things so that your triumph is soured by the process. And Miguel's right, it's not always gonna be that way, but keeping your spirits up, you know, whatever you can do, whether it's a great dinner with friends or Prozac or therapy or, but, but the tide of, of, of mediocrity will try to rise against you in many situations, not all. And then just to get paranoid, then you can get yourself, you know, you're in these meetings with all of the directors and the producers in the suits, and you have to do a rewrite because you're shooting in three weeks, and people want to know what you're going to do. So it's not a question of, will you do this, and does it work? And so you have to be able to tell the person you're working for, the ultimate bosses, if you can actually concretely pull this change off. Not changing the major character from male to female, but if you can do it within the time schedule, and you have to be honest. And you have to say, yeah, I think I can do it because it works, or, or no, I don't think it can work. Well, if you're in a meeting with the head of the studio and with one or two powerful producers and one of the producers who's really nice but is a snake and has a terrible fucking idea and says, do this, Miguel, and, and then the head of the studio says, well, Miguel, can you do that? I have to either say, yes, I can do it, or if I really can't do it, then I have to say, I don't think I can do it. I don't think it'll work. If I say that, now to get into the deep, weird, paranoid word of Hollywood, I've just made an enemy for life because I told the producer that it didn't work and the studio had believed me and then they're going to come after me so then you you know we if you jump into the swimming pool it's full of some really pretty fish and some snakes and not snakes sharks yeah well guess what that's good and it's 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 nice and it's a simplistic formula it works for some people for other people it's a total waste of time i i tried doing things like that for a long time and then i would finally get to make my movie with the director would say miguel we got to fucking rewrite this because these scenes with these characters don't make any fucking sense, and I have to direct the actors, and I go, shit, you mean actually you have to have characters that make sense? Are you fucking kidding me? Why didn't somebody tell me this shit? And all of that cool stuff, and Sid Field and all those other guys about three acts and three structures, fuck it. If you don't have a character, you're <laughs> dead. I mean, you're gone. And it would, it would have been nice if Sid Fields or some of those other people had said that, but... No. If they could do it, they would have done it instead yeah. of write those books. So screw all those rules. If you have an incredible, weird, 
dominant, bizarre character who a great actor will kill to but do. There is a who, you know, to test whether your story is yeah. any good or not before you write it. And and I I learned this inadvertently, and it really works. It really does. Sometimes Lori and I don't like hearing like, "What's your new script about?" Right, particularly from people that aren't in our business, because because you're struggling with it all day long. You're having dinner with a couple oh, yeah. of friends. You don't want to talk about like what your thing is. You know, you just don't want to. And once in a while, I felt like they really, really wanted to know, and maybe they were people from out of town or something, and and they just wanted to talk to a screenwriter. And I go, okay, I'll I'll tell them a little bit about what it's about. And I inadvertently found something out, which is if your story, let's say you've collapsed your story to less than five minutes. If you tell like two minutes worth of the story, just enough to get the setup and the premise and have them say what the, you need a premise, you definitely need a premise, okay? And it's enough like here's the setup and she does this and here's what it is, so the movie's really about blah, 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 blah. If they say, and you stop after one minute or minute and a half, if they say, and then what happens? You've got something. You've got something because they want to flip the page to the next page. So, it's just a whole, writing a script is just a whole series. You're just a person sitting by a campfire telling a bunch of restless 12-year-olds a story. You're like Scheherazade, and they won't kill you if they're interested enough to keep, tell me more, tell me more. So that's why often a verbal pitch is what gets, you know, gets people deal sometimes, because if you can tell a good story verbally, um, and the structure of it is there, they might give you a deal to write it. Of course, they won't do this without you having written a script that they like first, so they can actually see that you can write a script. But the story, you know, telling it around the campfire is a very good analogy to what you need to do. Yeah, and, and, I, and on the other hand, if you can't, don't lose hope, because some great writers actually could not pitch a story if their lives fucking depended on it. You know, but it's true. Yeah. But but they can write amazing scripts, and you put them in a room with people, and you think they're like a freak from some other galaxy. But they write these incredible scripts. You know, so it's not mandatory. And if you haven't seen Leslie's uh, film uh, Limitless, uh, there's a hysterical moment where Bradley Cooper is trying to pitch his novel to some guys in the bar, and <laughs> it's still one of my favorite moments of where he just he just goes. <laughs> And we and we've all been there. It's just a great. It's a great moment. The more you talk, things you could just write a really complicated plot, which is a pleasure for the audience to see. If they if if they see one that works well, does not pitch well, because while that guy over here was doing this, she's really down here. She's taken off her face mask and she's really his wife. And you know, then their eyes just glaze over. You know, they respond best. Uh, storytelling is best when it's relatively straightforward, verbal storytelling. On the page, though, you can, I've had a lot of complicated plots in my thing, and I, I like them. I don't discourage you from doing that, but then that's something you're just going to sit down and write. And that is a big peril, is that you forget that the words are only uh, really, and, and here's another terrible, terrible truth. A three-page dialogue scene is about all you get. It's an eternity on screen. If, if, if the audience starts to see a scene that's more than three minutes long of people just talking and nothing else is going on, their butts start to shift in their seats by page four, unless it's the funniest or edgiest, or it's a Tarantino movie and one character has a gun on the other, okay? Or two people are about to have sex and there's sort of a dance going on to see whether it's going to happen. Or There's certain things like sexual tension or violence, the, the threat of violence that can let a scene go on longer than that. Do they have something in common? 
very first film that I had made was a film called Dudes, which actually just screened here last week um, at the Hollywood Theater with Pen Penelope Spheris directed it. But um, it, uh, I, I really struggled. There was this moment of where the main character is um, uh, looking out over this vast uh, uh, Western landscape. And he's like from New York. He's this punk rock kid, you know, who's never seen anything quite like it. And I this is back in 80, 85 when I wrote 86. And uh, I, I remember uh, spending like, a, you know, several days of like writing this, this, this monologue about what the impact of the scene, the, 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 the scenery had on him and the landscape and all of this stuff. It's really putting the zap on him. And um, it was cut. <laughs> and and uh, I remember seeing uh, just uh, the rough cut of the film and it was just cut entirely. And, and I realized right then and there, it was everything that I had tried to write was communicated through the actor's glance and a music cue and the shot of the scenery itself. And, uh, you know, so that was like a huge lesson for me right away is like, you know what? <laughs> it's a visual medium and it's it's this stuff just set up the architecture for it set up the stuff it's great but no it, that the that the actor might have had these words to say but ultimately it's probably going to get cut because it's going to be communicated via visual uh, a visual um, way yeah and oftentimes yeah. you get a little lift when something that wasn't next to each other in the draft if the interim scene is gone mm -hmm. and the having that scene bump up into the third scene away from it gives you a little bit of a boost, a little bit more momentum than you wouldn't have had otherwise. So that was a moment when Randall realized that all this verbal diary, I mean, all this great dialogue he wrote was shit and unnecessary for the movie, and he learned something from that. And that was like a big moment for him as a writer. What, just out of curiosity, and this is a hard and impossible one to answer, but Laurie, what was a big moment for you when you learned something which you didn't know? I think I'm still waiting for my big moment. Okay, a, me <laughs> a medium moment or a small one? Just a huge one. No, you have one? No, I'm still waiting. Okay. I, have, I have a similar thing to what Laurie experienced, though, which is um, I learned very quickly from seeing my work on his feet, and luckily, or in a couple little ways, unluckily, my first script was shot verbatim. I just had an old-fashioned director that believed in shooting the script, and like, boom, there it was, and it did business. So that's the, what, what got me going, which was Outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and Shelley Long. And, um, but what I learned right away, even though the script got shot the way I wrote it, um, was any scene in which people either talk about what they just did or what they're about to do gets cut. Because, right? You just want to go from incident to incident. You don't want anybody telling you what you're about to see because then there's no surprise. And you don't want anybody talking about what you just saw because you just saw it. It seems like the simplest thing, but sometimes just looking at something that seemed okay on the page and then just would be a logy sort of piece of padding. And like Lori, I was kind of glad to see that just snipped out. And I found myself in later cheekier, brattier years saying to directors, you know that scene's never going to make it in the movie, don't you? Can't I just save yourself the money and don't shoot it? And sometimes they go, yeah, okay. I always had a couple things like that in there so that if we got squeezed for budget, I could just, and I'd look like a hero. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And anyway, but what, okay, what, what have you learned from? I, I just had one moment, which I, I sometimes both as a writer, at least for a long time and previously as an executive and other aspects of my life, I had a, I have had a bad habit of talking too much occasionally, and gosh, 
<laughs> Fuck. What? And so I'm working for this. I'm working for this very cool horror writer. We did a sequel, a sequel to Reanimator, which was one of my favorite cult horror movies. And I was writing a sequel with him, Brian Yosna, and we were spending, and we were writing. And he goes, Miguel, 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 look at, and, and I was like into writing all this lyrical, beautiful verbiage in my paragraphs, all the shit there. And he's Miguel, what the fuck are all these words doing here? We don't need all these words. All we need is a simple description of what is happening on the screen. All the rest of this is shit. Get it the fuck out of here. We don't need, I'm going, but Brian, cause like he was insulting me and not telling me how great I was. Cause I was still in love with that aspect. And then, then this thing clicked and I go, fuck, he's right. Actually, I just have to really take a deep breath and really be Hemingway-esque and cut myself to the bone. And whatever is down is going to be on the screen and that's it. And, yeah, we're supposed to know this. Her, her, her first script got shot verbatim, which is cool. Mine didn't. And it, yeah, per, and, and it took me a while to learn that what I'm writing both cannot be overwritten and is very, very, very important. So that was like, whoa. It's like, and it just took a while for that to like come into my brain and then make it onto, you know. And, and then my scripts got better, actually. That and also the fucking director who said, it was a different director who said, Miguel, characters have to have reasons for doing things. I go, fuck, are you kidding? I had um, my first job ever. I've never really had a real job. I wouldn't be employable anywhere, really. Um, but my first job, you know, out of high school, summer job in high school was um, as a portrait artist at an amusement park doing pastel portraits. Yeah. Great Adventure, Six Flags, Great Adventure, Jackson, New Jersey. Anybody from New Jersey? Okay. It was, come to find out, the perfect training for a career in Hollywood because it was a little kiosk with little umbrellas and there were, you know, eight or nine artists. And people would be able to pick, they'd see us sketching and they would pick who they wanted to do their portrait. And then the real reason for the for the job was to sh to sell laminating and the plastic frame that went around the portrait. And the company had a policy that they would not refund anybody's money. So people would watch and they would pick, you know, we all had different style. They would pick who they wanted to do their portrait. And it didn't happen very often, but occasionally somebody would not like their portrait that I had done and they would want their money back. And so the company would say, I'm sorry, we don't offer refunds. And then there would be a big fight and then they would go across to the other side of the amusement park and then they would get their money back and then the portrait that I had just spent a half an hour hour drawing would be torn up in front of me and that's what you know screenwriting is a little bit about they pick you because they liked your thing and then they don't the next year I switched over to doing caricatures and people were a lot more willing to make fun of their big nose or their messy hair or whatever it was a lot less personal to them and maybe that's why I went into comedy. I, I, I felt like I could get away with more that way. But I was still the same person. Their opinion of me changed, but I had to hang on to my own core, you know, emotional state, which is bumpy. It's hard to do sometimes. But you're the same person from one day to the next, no matter what you write or no matter what anybody says about it. And at the end of the day, it's just a movie. And what I don't have patience for Everything else is subjective, but business manners and kindness and respect, pretty objective criteria for that. 
And what I get really fed up about is a lot of people thinking that, you know, this is the most important thing ever. We're making a movie here. They will throw their mother under a bus to get that movie made. Um, it's just a movie. So good luck. The people I know who get the most lost and are the most miserable in Hollywood, and this includes super, super successful people, but they're not happy, are the people for whom that world of getting films made and TV shows made is their prevailing reality, their prevailing emotional reality. Then they don't, ha they've been down there for so many years that they are fully socially and emotionally subsumed in it, with it as well as professionally. And that's why I talk about keeping your old friends and you know, keeping a foot in the real world at all times. Um, one of the problems with managers is that they can also produce. It, it, it's, agents cannot produce, okay? They can only, but the advantage of a manager, and I know a lot of people who've had both and a lot of percentage of their money goes out to two people, a manager will endlessly listen to you whine and complain. They get this money because they'll stay on the phone with you. They might be doing other things, but uh-huh, oh God, honey, that's so awful. And they'll listen, you know, managers are more about emotional support and hand-holding, and, hand and, and that's why lots of needy stars have managers, particularly female stars, because when they're getting their periods, their age are going, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, Stephen's calling, I got to go, you know. But the manager will just go, oh, and come to their house and help them paint their toenails and listen to the... so. You have to beware of anybody coddling you to that extent. Believe me, it won't happen with your first script. But a lot of people have agents and managers. I wouldn't say it's the worst thing in the world when you're just starting out to have two people talking about you all the time up and down to everybody. You know, even though you're, a lot of your money's going out, later if you get a lot of traction, you can get rid of one of them. Um, but the slippery slope with managers is they can also produce. And that is where they can make themselves the producer of your movie. And that gets pretty weird pretty quickly. And, and here's a different answer. This answer is the classic old line on managers, maybe not for artists, actors, but for writers or directors is, well, you have an agent, but your agent is a big agency and they have so many clients that they can't really do justice to you. Whereas I, your manager, only have a select few handful, so I'm gonna be working for you all the time and I can make sure that I can supervise your agent because no matter how much they work for you, they have all these other people they have to take care of too. So I can actually get the job done. Well, guess what? Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's black. Sometimes it's white. Sometimes you have a great fucking agent. You don't need a manager. Sometimes you have a terrible agent and you need a manager. Maybe. Sometimes, I mean, who knows? And then it gets back to the other more fundamental question, which is you are a writer, you're creating your work, you know how hard it is, right? And we were talking about, you know, being able to pitch sometimes, which is both an art form and an instinctive thing and who the fuck knows. Well, not all writers can pitch. So we have agents. The agents represent our work. The good agent, and now, so what's your relationship? How do you get an agent? That's a whole complex thing. What's your relationship with your agent? What's your relationship with your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend? What kind of relationships are there? There are many different kinds of relationships in your lives. There's no one way. Ditto for agents. And there are all kinds of, you know, I mean, there's ones who only want to have a brief conversation with you. There's ones who will actually have lengthy, you know, Shakespearean dialogues with you. And there's every variety. And it's like a relationship. Some relationships work. I, I have both an agent and a, and a manager. And... Um, the, the difference for, for me is I, I, I feel more creatively in sync with my manager. I think 
he gets me better than in some sense than my agent does. Uh, my, but when it comes to negotiating a deal, you know, I want my agent out there doing it because she's, she's awesome. Uh, but I've, frankly, I've clashed with her creatively over what's good and what isn't and what works and what doesn't when, when she's read some of my stuff um, before. And I don't always agree with her on that front. My manager, I feel much more in, 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 in sync with. And his role is, uh, as of late, has been a little bit more as like a creative producer where, you know, hey, I, I'm working on this. Here are some pages. What do you think? I like this. Or I don't like this. This is a good instinct. I think I can sell this or whatever. So it's a bit as a as a collaborator, and I think that's the difference. You know, is that you know, an agent is going to look. They want to. They want something they can sell and sell now. You know, they're looking for you know a script, a commodity, and uh, a manager will be interested in investing you for the long term. You know, for a long you know long term relationship. But on the other hand, that's not true because, I mean, just for fun, because your agent who you think is not doing enough work for you because you wrote this great, brilliant script and all your friends told you how it was great, how great it was, and they better damn well fucking sell it, right? Well, guess what? Your agent is trying to sell the script, but at the same time, if they're a decent or good agent, and hopefully they are, they are also trying to tell, sell you, whether you're known or unknown. They're trying to in a bunch of different ways, let's simplify it. They're trying to establish you as a writing brand. So some of us were talking about, you have to have something else in the pipeline, you have to be working on something else for both practical and psychological and emotional reasons. Your agent is a human being who was investing a bunch of time in you. You're, you may think that you've invested a bunch of time and that you're doing them a favor. They're spending a lot of time with you, so it's a two-way street. So what is your relationship between you? Man, it's complicated. What's the relationship between your mother, your father, your wife, your girlfriend? It's, it's there are no simple answers. Yeah. It just they've also got 40, 40, 50 other clients. Who, if they're at a big agency, they might be sharing you with two or three other agents. You know, like you might have a team. That's very common these days. I've never particularly liked it. I like to know who I'm dealing with and like which person. And I've always had one agent and no manager. Um, but that's not necessarily a recommendation that that's right for you. You'll feel your way through it. You'll get a sense. And the other thing that I would say is listen to your gut. If it begins to crawl uncomfortably, no matter how friendly and smiling somebody is being and promising the moon, your gut is probably right. But the other part of that is you have to do your part. So if they'll say you get an agent and they send you on a meeting, and we can talk about this in the, the, the comporting yourself in Hollywood panel, but you have to be the most charming damn person those executives have ever met. And we'll talk a little bit about how to scintillate because honestly, they meet people all day long and you have to be the most cool person that they've met in a long time. So they remember you, right? Again, it depends on whether you're talking about studio pictures or not. And as all of these guys are saying, that world is shrinking to a few comedies starring Melissa McCarthy um, and superhero movies and the occasional little squeaker that gets in because some very famous actor or director wants to do it. And the studio goes, yes, or of course animation. That's a whole other uh, kettle of fish. And that's really kind of something you have to pursue um, in a parallel world to, to regular screenwriting. Although there's crossover, Laurie does it. Um, but, but what I would say that they're looking for is either a big bang for your buck 
special effect movie of some kind. Science fiction is always good. They're really interested. They, it's very hard to make a good science fiction movie. And for every District 9 or Looper or one of those, there's a bunch of crap. So if you've written a good science fiction script, the chances of somebody wanting to do it, that's, that's actually something they're looking for right now. They're not looking for romantic comedies. Oh, I know so. Oh, yeah. Well, it just has to be good, right? It has to not be like some other thing they've seen a million times. But look, they're, they're, they're getting made all the time. Not necessarily, but then again, there are brilliant, brilliant science fiction novels that have never been turned into into films. And if you can option one of them, you know, you, you, you half your work's done for you already, you know. But anyway, they're not looking for romantic comedies particularly. Um, high concept comedy will always have its place at the table, you know. Um, star driven. But look at The Hangover. That's a total premise-driven, high-concept yeah. comedy. And it, it works quite well. I mean, you can still make a, a fun film using that formula. But that's the studio world. And then you get into the world of, of the next tier down, which are the independent companies that have a presence, like Fox Searchlight and places like that. And those people are all about, can we win the Oscar? Okay? And that's a whole different... And I'm not as familiar with that world. I've never been nominated. Nothing I've ever written has been nominated for anything except like best makeup for Mrs. Doubtfire or something. So, you know, that's not my world. But that is what is driving those companies is can, like Harvey Weinstein, like can we win the Oscar? Um, and that's a whole different set of criteria and a whole different audience and maybe a slightly older audience too. So you could write something more intelligent or edgy, but at the same time, you do have to provide those pesky actors with the roles of a lifetime. You know, that's always going to be an issue, whether you're doing the cheap seats or the, or the Oscar bait. Uh, just one last thing. Leslie said uh, romantic comedies aren't very popular, but I'm sure you all know that there's a sequel in the works to Sleepless in Seattle, which is based on the obsession with food here in PDX, and it's called pigging out in Portland. Thanks for listening to the Portland Film Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue our screenwriting series from the 2016 Portland Film Festival. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at theportlandfilmpodcast.com. The Portland Film Podcast is a Portland Film Festival production produced and edited by Misty Eddy. Our associate producer is Sean Conley sound engineer Paul Dillon, and I'm Molly Silverstein. See you next time.